I'm Carrie Miller, and this week's Big Books and Bold Ideas writer is Quan Berry. She's out with a new novel about two brothers on a quest in Mongolia to find the reincarnated child to take the place of a holy elder. When Barry isn't writing or teaching, she's often traveling, and her books reflect her curiosity about far-flung places in the world. The last time I talked with her in 2015, she'd spent time in Vietnam, and that's where she set her last novel, She Weeps Each Time You're Born. She is an excellent conversationalist. Stay tuned. Here's Quan Barry. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is NPR News, now in-depth on a place that's so much more than its war. All American personnel have been ordered off the streets, and uh, here at the embassy, reports are trickling in very slowly. The docks on Tuesday morning were crammed with thousands of Vietnamese desperate to escape from Saigon by any means possible. This April marks the 40th anniversary of the fall of Saigon, and for Americans, that remains one of our most vivid images of the country. Helicopters rising in a swirl of dust and desperation just ahead of the North Vietnamese soldiers. But if you've been to Vietnam lately, you know that the middle class is growing, capitalism is thriving, and the war seems surprisingly distant. My guest's new novel will introduce you to a Vietnam of lingering wounds, but also of mystery and magic. She tried to reveal a country, in her words, that is so much more than our preconceptions. Quan Berry is a poet and professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her novel is titled She Weeps Each Time You're Born, and she's with us today from Wisconsin Public Radio in Madison. Quan, welcome. It's really good to have you on the show. Thank you. I was in Vietnam, I think the same year that you first traveled there as an adult in 2010. Is that right? Uh, I first traveled there in 2001, but I was back in 2010. Tell me how what you saw on those trips fit with, with what you'd expected. Well, honestly, it didn't fit. The landscape definitely fit with what I was expecting. But as far as the people and the interactions and the economy and the bustling, just the hubbub of everything, that didn't fit. I had thought when I went back that I would see a country that I would still be able to see the scars of the war there. And really, you can't. Um, again, I had thought as an American going back, too, that there might be some lingering hostility that people might feel towards me. But the Vietnamese people really, really don't. They really love America. And um, they love talking with Americans. That, that's what was so startling for me. We were there at Christmas time. I thought I could be in any city where people are shopping for very recognizable brands. No one cares that, you know, we fought a war there 40 mm-hmm. years. It, it's just it's like our lingering obsession. And Vietnam has so moved on. Mm -hmm. I was actually back in Vietnam this January for three weeks. And while I was there, I actually saw an individual who I'd seen before. Um, He's actually a man who usually wears a sign around his neck. He, when you see him, you can see that his hands are are deformed, his face, he's missing most of his nose and his lips and his eyelids and his ears. And basically his sign lets you know that he's a victim of napalm. Mm. And when I saw him this time, you know, I saw him, I walked by, I felt that thing where my heart just sort of clenched. You know, I smiled at him. He smiled at me. Um, so you, you know, I, we, I, I'm not saying that we had a moment or anything like that, but it was just the idea that, you know, here's this individual and, you know, he was smiling. He smiled. Um, 
and so that that's just a, a really strong memory for yeah, me. Yeah, and that just and it reminds you that perhaps what you would have expected from an encounter like that is not the way it went. Yeah, exactly. Do you think some of this is demography? I mean, do you think it's Vietnam is a young country? I and mean, you know, you walk the streets on a busy evening and you see a lot of people in their twenties and early 30s. Is this just about, this is a whole new generation, and they're not going to be preoccupied with something that happened 40 years ago? I think that's part of it. But I also think that because Vietnam has such a long history of basically being um, attacked by other countries, that they just sort of put it in perspective. So, you know, obviously they had issues in the past with China. They um, had border skirmishes with Cambodia. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there was the presence of the French. And the reason why I think that it's not just a generational thing is that uh, when I went back to Vietnam in 2000, I've been back four times. So I was there in 2010. And I was also there the year in which Barack Obama Obama was running for the presidency for the first time. (laughs) And while I was there, I actually traveled with two guides uh, in the central highlands of Vietnam. And my guides would take me to various places to meet various people and to see various important places. And while I was there, I actually stopped in at the home of a man who I think was in his 90s. And he was actually a 50-year member of the Communist Party. Wow. And um, so I stopped in at his house and, you know, we had a conversation. I don't speak Vietnamese, so this was all through my guide. Mm -hmm. And as I was leaving, I actually, I, at the time I was traveling with just a bunch of extra stickers I had gotten for, you know, uh, being a volunteer for the Obama campaign. And so I had all these, you know, stickers that had Obama's face on it and said (laughs) hope and all these things. And I actually presented this gentleman with one of these stickers and his face just lit up. He was just (laughs) so happy to get it. And then just one other thing I'll say too about that encounter that I had with him. It was um, my guide oftentimes would take people to meet this particular individual because he liked to meet Americans specifically. Mm. And in the past, what would happen is that sometimes my guides had taken uh, former Vietnam vets to meet this man. And when they would go, they would present him with a dollar bill, an American dollar bill. And they would write on the dollar bill just some sort of memento of the moment. Mm. And uh, as we were coming as we were beginning to leave my guide asked me if I had you know a dollar bill that I could write something on to give to this man as a keepsake and I didn't have any dollar bills on me at the time and I was rummaging through my wallet and I actually discovered that I had left over one of those gold Sacagawea dollars that you wow, get sometimes yeah. as change yeah. you know when you buy stamps and I actually presented him with this gold you know Sacagawea dollar and again because in Vietnam <laughs> there are no coins there are right. only bills That's right. and so when I gave him this golden dollar his face just again lit up <laughs> So, like I said, I, I hear what you're saying about it being a generational thing. I do think that's part of it. But like I said, too, it's because people, have, you know, they've been fighting for the last, you know, before we were there. So, yeah. like I said, I think they put it all in perspective. And, and that is a, an interesting perspective. To understand your own history, you were born there but adopted out of the country, what, at six months old? Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and do you have any ties with, with any biological family there? I don't, no. And so when you've gone back these, you said four times, mm-hmm. are you going back for research, for writing, or what's drawing you back so often? Uh, for, for kind of everything. So I'm very fortunate in the fact that I've been able to travel in the world extensively. I lived in Japan uh, as an undergraduate for a year. And when I lived there, I began to travel a lot in Southeast Asia in general because it was cheaper to travel there than it was in Japan. So I've been to many countries in the area multiple times. I've been to Korea multiple times, in Thailand, in Vietnam, in China. Um, so that landscape in general for me is, it's um, you know, as a poet, it's a landscape that I find 
find particularly evocative when it comes to images. Um, I, I find it an easy place to travel. There are so many tourists, and it's a, it's an area that's tr- just changing so quickly that I want to go back as often as I can before it becomes um, too different from what I remember it being originally. Yeah, you know, Vietnam has – this was the other thing that struck me is it has so many different landscapes. You know, it, mm-hmm. it looks very different, right, if you're on the coast as – being in the highlands for some reason the highlands kind of reminded me of wales i i, I don't mm-hmm. it's so green and lush and mm-hmm. hilly um so so what part of that landscape do you think is particularly uh nourishing to your mm-hmm. writing mm-hmm. Hmm. it depends on what i'm doing so for example when i was just back in january i was actually um on the coast i was in a, a village called mui ne and um, so it's on the ocean. It's one of the premier sites for kite surfing, actually. And so all afternoon, every afternoon, I would watch just maybe hundreds of kites just filling the air. It was a beautiful sight. These kites are huge and colorful, and they're zipping all over the water. And, you know, I wrote a few poems about that particular experience. So that particular landscape was helpful at that time, especially coming from Wisconsin in the snowy winter. <laughs> so to be there in January and just to see all this color and sun and things like that, you know, really informed my writing. Um, I've written stories, and there are, there are aspects, for example, in the north near Hanoi, there's the perfume uh, pagoda, which is mm-hmm. up in the mountains. Mm-hmm. And that's been an area that's been particularly – that area was, was rich for me not only imagistically, but also as far as the, the folklore and the stories and the myths that sort of surround that particular landscape, particularly myths about the idea of the bodhisattva of compassion perhaps living on that mountain. Um, so, again, that landscape was, was important to me for those reasons. How, um, on my, mm-hmm. I, I was just going to ask you how well you understood the, the mythology of Vietnam before these trips? I mean, was this something that has kind of you've you've peeled back the layers on that over the course of these trips? Or did you know a lot about it? I didn't know a lot about it. I've always been a student of sacred texts in general. So I'm very interested in the Bible, in Buddhist texts, in Hindu texts, um, in, orig- in origin stories and things like that. So I didn't know the particulars of Vietnam before I went. But yes, it was a gradual process of learning um, about these things. Are, are you writing while you're there or are you taking the time to process what you've seen on these trips? I most I I keep a journal, um, and the journal is mostly just what I did and what I saw and things like that. It's not super detailed. Um, oftentimes, when I go somewhere, I don't know what it's going to become until many, many, many moons later. So, for example, I was actually in Mongolia in 2008, and it's only now that I'm beginning to understand what I'm going to do with that landscape. And I'm working on a new book about Mongolia. A fiction or nonfiction. Uh, it's a fiction book. Hmm. What do you think happens in that interim time as you're trying to make sense of what you've seen, as you say, uh, maybe six or seven years later? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's always there in the back of my mind. And really, it's a, it's a, there's an element of luck to it um, that I'll stumble across the story um, and I'll know, oh, that's what I want to write about. And I'll know that that's the landscape in which this story needs to take place. That's sort of what happened for me with this particular novel. Originally, I had wanted to write a novel about an American nurse during the American War in Vietnam. And I did a lot of research about the men and women who served uh, in medical units there. And I actually wrote 100, 150 pages of a novel. And the more I wrote, the more I realized that really that book should have just been a memoir and that there have been memoirs written by men and women who served as doctors and nurses in Vietnam. So I decided to go back to Vietnam and see if I could 
find inspiration somehow to sort of kickstart that particular novel. But what ended up happening instead is that I traveled once again with these two guides who I mentioned previously. Mm -hmm. And they actually took me to a memorial. We stopped at a lot of memorials in Vietnam. Most of the memorials are for the northern dead. They don't tend to commemorate the southern dead because obviously the north won the war. Mm -hmm. And we stopped at this one particular memorial, and there was a house next to it with a caretaker. And we went in to see him, to talk with him. And again, this is all in translation. And the caretaker basically told us, he was very excited, that this woman named Fanti Bit Hang was going to be coming to visit the memorial. And of course, I had to ask, well, who is Fanti Bit Hang? And it turns out that Fanti Bit Hang is the, um, the official psychic of the Vietnamese government. And basically, her story is that she was bitten by a rabid dog when she was a child. And when she came out of her coma, she could now hear the voices of the dead. And the government basically uses her to go and to find um, the bodies of soldiers or of historically prominent people or what have you. Um, so when I came out of that house, and I, after hearing this story, I was like, aha, this, this is what my novel is about. This, <laughs> this is, yeah. So it's not exactly about her, but it's about somebody with these abilities. What a wonderful moment. I mean, the, 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 you must be flooded with excitement about starting to bring it together, relief that you found something after putting aside 150 pages. <laughs> <laughs> right? What's that like? Yeah. I remember again I came out of the, you know, of the caretaker's home and I got I was my guides are motorcycle guides, so we ride motorcycles and I ride you know on the back of their bikes. And I remember, you know, throwing my leg over the bike and the hair sort of rising on the back of my neck and I thought, <laughs> ah, finally. But again, you know, I had been to Vietnam. That was my second or third trip there. So, like I said, it takes – I have to stumble sort of on the story. And then I'm like, okay, this is the landscape, but this is the story. So um, that's sort of how my process works. That's really wonderful. Quan Berry is with us if you've just tuned in. She's a poet and first-time novelist, and the new book is called She Weeps Each Time You're Born, professor at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and that's where she's joining us this morning. We're talking about some of the inspiration and the themes uh, of her writing and these visits and how fruitful they are to Vietnam. Um, let, uh, this is such a complex story. I really do hesitate to ask you to give us some plot uh, insight, yeah. but I'm going to ask you to tell us a bit about the main character. How about that? We'll access the story that way mm-hmm. and then maybe a short excerpt. So h- how would you describe mm-hmm. Rabbit to us? Mm-hmm. So it happens in the very first chapter, so I don't think it gives away too much. But Rabbit is a a girl, a Vietnamese child, who was born under mysterious circumstances on on the night of the full moon. And um, basically, it's, uh, you know, she's a child who, um, as a toddler, as a four-year-old, you know, is very quiet. It always seems like she's listening, but nobody seems to be able to figure out what it is that she's hearing. And eventually it gets revealed again that she has the power to be able to hear um, the stories and the voices of the dead. And so in thinking about the landscape of Vietnam, the book also um, follows her life as she grows up. And so we see Vietnam in different periods. We see it just as the American War is ending. So it's a couple of years before the war ends. And then we actually see the fall or the reunification of Vietnam, depending on how you look at it. Um, Then, you know, in another chapter, we sort of Watch what happens um, as more and more people try and escape Vietnam by boat. After that, we sort of see Vietnam beginning to um, economically try and change and the role of the Russians um, in Vietnam in the, in the mid-80s. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we see how Vietnam makes an economic uh, shift and becomes more capitalist in nature. Um, and then hopefully by the end of the book, we come full circle um, and Rabbit has once again sort of remembered her powers and things like that. You know, I I just, I noted the way you just described 
what happened in Saigon at the end of the war. You said the fall, or if you look at it like that, or the reunification. So, um, mm-hmm. so why do you make that specific note? I guess we Americans say the fall of Saigon, right? Mm-hmm. We do, and yet we don't say like the fall, for example, of Germany. We talk right. about the reunification of Germany, right? right? So it's all about the victors writing sort of you know the history there. Um, obviously, there's a large community of expat Vietnamese in this country. There's a large Vietnamese diaspora. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them, I, I sort of think the analogy of um, Cuban exiles in Florida is very similar. These are people who um, feel very strong that the United States should not normalize uh, relations with Vietnam. Um, many of them still refer to uh, what happened in spring of 1970 is Black April. Um, so people feel very strongly um, about the idea that it was a fall. Um, and yet, you, you know, again, that's, that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is that North Vietnam and South Vietnam were going to be one country eventually and that it was really a reunification. Um, I have to admit that for me, you know, being adopted, um, I don't actually have an opinion one way or the other as to whether or not, you know, it's a fall or a reunification. But I recognize that both ways of looking at the issue um, are valid. You also mentioned the rock- Russians in Vietnam in the 80s or the 90s? Um, in the 80s. Right. And, and, we, and, and still. Yeah, we learn more about that in your novel. That's a part of Vietnam's history I had, I had no frame of reference for. How mm-hmm. did you learn about this? Um, just through research. And okay. so basically, and, and, and I didn't really have to do that much research because it just began to make sense to me. So I could actually make things up that basically, you know, during the Cold War, uh, Russian citizens really didn't have that many places where they could travel. You know, I'm assuming that because of visa issues, you know, they could go to, they could go to Cuba, they could go, you know, to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You know, there, just a, there was just a certain number of places where they could actually go. And um, so obviously the communist countries, you know, really uh, would band together in certain kinds of ways. Or ways in which Russia obviously helped various communist countries because it was in their best interest to, um, and so you know, oftentimes they would prop up certain countries. I, I'm finding that more and more in my research about Mongolia. Mongolia borders Siberia, and it's the same thing where the Russians, you know, were very much keeping that economy afloat um, for many, many years. And um, so, yeah, so, so it's a similar kind of thing in Vietnam. How do you think the population of Vietnam feel about that? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I mentioned I was back there in January on the yeah. coast, and the particular town where I was staying, Muine, there's a huge. There's so, most of the tourists in that particular um, town are Russian. You can walk down the street, and there are signs in Russian. There are particular places. And usually they tend to be on the ocean um, where a lot of Russian tourists like to go, particularly in the winter. Um, so, you know, the question is to ha- – I, I don't really have a sense as to how um, the Vietnamese feel about Russian tourists versus any other kind of tourist. But, again, the Russian presence is very, very um, palpable in certain areas. We continue our conversation with Quan Berry. Her new novel is called She Weeps Each Time You're Born. When we when we went to news, I was uh, asking her if she would read a paragraph or two from the novel. Tell me where we are, Quan. I, I feel like we're getting introduced to Rabbit here a, a little more mm-hmm. deeply. Is that right? Um, well, she's, uh, she's actually about to be born. Oh, so right. um, it's the idea that, uh, again, she's born under mysterious circumstances. And this actually can be traced back to there is a Vietnamese um, ghost story about a child, um, the child born of death. And uh, basically, that's what's happening in this particular section is that her mother um, was very sick, but was pregnant with her. And uh, yet somehow she still manages to uh, be born despite the fact that her mother is not quite of this world. Okay. Go right ahead. Okay. So her father begins shoveling the earth with the board. The fresh dirt moved easily. In less than 10 minutes, he hit something. 
a box. Look closer and realize it has been hastily nailed together with sun-bleached planks from the one-room house where your mother lived with your grandmother. The old woman's eyes knitted with clouds. Wait until the top of the box has been lifted off, the body bag unzippered to fill your tiny lungs with the first clean air you have ever inhaled, breath sugary sweet. Know that the world doesn't always smell like this, ash and soot, though every time you smell it, you will flash on the sudden feeling of lying on someone's stony breast. Let the man who is your father lift you out of the darkness and up into the moonlight. Look closely at his face, the birthmark on the edge of his scalp. You will not see him again for many years, if at all. You know, I feel like in listening to you read that, that I hear some of the rhythm of a poet in in the prose. Is that is that fair to say? That is, and particularly in that section, um, because it's sort of the, the the climactic moment in that particular chapter. It's true that the language becomes uh, slightly more elevated and slightly more poetic. Um, there's actually, for example, a shift into second person, which most of the book is written in third person. Right. So, like I said, because it's a it's a sh- it's a more climactic moment. It's true that the language there becomes, like I said, heightened a bit. Do you read your your poetry and your prose aloud as you're working on them? I do, unfortunately, to, to the point where with my poems, I actually, uh, after a while, I, I basically have them memorized. And I find that with fiction, I tend to do the same thing. And so sometimes, I'm not saying that I have this book memorized, <laughs> but uh, when I was writing it, I would have b- big chunks of it memorized. And the reason why that actually is not necessarily great for a writer in their writing process is because it makes it very hard to revise. You know, when you have mm-hmm. something memorized, you think, oh, this is the way it's going to be. And then when you need to make significant changes, um, that can sort of throw you off a bit. So, so that means you get kind of invested in the way that it's been written after you've memorized it. And it's hard to come back and say, yes. no, this really does need to be moved around. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. is that right? So it, it's it's not a great like I said, it's not a great writing process, but it, but somehow I managed to to stumble through it. So. So, so why do you do the the read aloud when you're in the midst um, of work? It helps What's me. It yeah, it it helps me when it comes to um, because as a poet, it's really important for me to you know the rhythm, word choice, all those kinds of things. Um, it helps me again get the language as precise as I want it to be. So if I weren't, if I didn't read it aloud, um, you know, there might be there might be flab in there, extra <laughs> words that I don't need, those kinds of things. But when I hear it out loud, I can tell, oh, okay, yeah, that's as tight as it needs to be, um, et cetera. You know, the thing that I that I um, felt like you you did effortlessly, and I, and it probably wasn't, but it seemed like it was balance this. Um, this idea that Rabbit lives in a mystical kind of world. But she's also really grounded in day-to-day life in Vietnam. I, I think that's a difficult thing to, to find the right balance in. How'd you do mm-hmm. it? Hmm, That's a good question. Um, let me think. So, you know, it's interesting. It, the, originally, this book had a very, very different ending. Um, so in one of my very early drafts, the, I ended the book in a completely different way. Hmm. Basically, what I had decided to do was um, in the very first chapter of this book, there's a character named Amy Kwan, mm-hmm. who – is that me? Is that not me? Hmm, it's a good question. <laughs> and um, 
The way I had previously ended the book was that I had brought this character of Amy Kwan back, and the book had actually ended as a travel log where Amy Kwan goes to all these different places where Rabbit had been,、oh. and Amy Kwan sees all these places. And the reason I had done that is because the book uses a lot of magical realism,、right. and I didn't want it to be the kind of thing where there's all this magical realism, but it never adds up to anything. You know,、mm-hmm. it's just sort of there. <laughs> and so I thought by having a character who was me in the book that that would lend the book a sort of、um, realism. In a way that would be like, oh wow, these places actually do exist. You can actually visit these places and see these things.、Um, so that was one of the reasons why I had added myself as a character. Uh, and the revision process, I began to understand that it, it wasn't quite working. But the thing that I did, though, in thinking about that, was I really wanted to keep these actual landscapes. It was very important to me、mm-hmm. to be like, okay, this is this is this particular mountain, or this is the floating village in the Mekong Delta, or this is the 36 streets. These are the 36 streets in Hanoi.、Um, so, like I said, it was very important to me to actually keep these landscapes. And by doing that, then hopefully, even though the book does have、um, you know a very ethereal feel in certain kinds of Ways, hopefully, it is grounded then a very, in a very particular place. You use the phrase magical realism with not one wince or cringe, as many <laughs> other writers do, and you know what I mean by this, right? <laughs> why, why? You feel okay with that? It, it sounds、I、like、do. why. With magical realism. Well, yeah. I mean, when you bring that up to Isabella Yende, she just she hates the term. She doesn't want to think that her. She she wants to find a better way to talk about what she does with her literature.、Huh. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I have I have、uh, I have no problem with it. Maybe I should, but、uh, I yeah I don't have any problem with that term because I feel like it is a fairly apt description of what I do. Sometimes people don't know like well what is magical realism? How does that differ, for example, from Harry Potter? Right, and so the difference being that in Harry Potter,、um, you know, you have wizard. I have to admit I haven't read the Harry Potter books, but、um, <laughs> neither have but, I. Much to the chagrin、yes. of many listeners. No, no, but my understanding is is that there are things that obviously. Do not exist, and like there are wizards, or there are magical beings, or there are creatures that do not actually physically exist. With magical realism, it's the idea that everything in my book does exist, but it's put together in combinations.、Um, In ways that are magical. So, for example, in the very first chapter, there's a moment where there's a there's a carcass of a of a dead pig, and yet living inside that carcass, there are bees. You know,、right. and so obviously a dead pig could exist. Obviously, bees could exist. The idea, though, of bees living inside the carcass of a dead pig probably could not exist. So again, you're taking realistic aspects of the world, but you're putting them into strange combinations,、um, strange juxtapositions. And so, to me, I think that magical realism is actually a, a term that's helpful as long as people understand what, what we mean when we talk about it. That was a really good description. I, you know, of course, my mind goes to Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who who、mm-hmm. does, I think, just what you've described. It's It's a landscape that's very recognizable. It's just that things are, well, for lack of a better description, they're larger than life, right? But we、mm-hmm. willingly enter that. I, I think of it, a, about it as seeing a Wes Anderson movie. It、mm. all looks familiar, but things are much more colorful and they're larger、mm-hmm. than life. And、mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think of those comparisons? 
No, that sounds that sounds very apt to me. You know, one of the things that I had mentioned before that I had tried to work on that book about an American nurse for a long time, and it really wasn't going anywhere. And so when I stumbled on, again, the story that I eventually ended up writing, I also sat down and I thought, okay, so what are my strengths as a writer? And one of my strengths, you know, is hopefully lyricism, and mm-hmm. that's because I'm a poet. And then um, I realized that another strength of mine, for, for better or for worse, is that ever since I was a child, I just have a very strong imagination. You know, I've never really limited myself to just this world. And so I thought, okay, so it might make sense, particularly because this is kind of a ghost story. It probably will make sense for things that could not actually happen in our world to happen in the world of this book. Do you think most writers would say one of my strengths is I have a very vivid imagination? You know, unfortunately, I think most writers would say this, yes. But I think that unfortunately what's happening more and more is that – and I'm not sure if it's because of the sort of rise of the memoir in the last 20 years. But more and more people are – you know, reviewers, et cetera, are always trying to look at the life, you know, the author's life um, and look through the work through that particular lens, you know. And so it's the idea like, oh, this must have something to do with your life in certain kinds of ways as opposed to the idea that, no, I just sort of made it all up. (laughs) Um, And I I think that for me, because I was born in Vietnam, people really want to – Again, look at this book through that particular lens, and I understand that. I mean, there is a character named Amy Kwan in the Barrys. Uh, Amy Kwan, I'm sorry, in the book. So I, I understand why people would want to do that. Um, and thinking about the book that I'm working on now, though, you know, it's set in Mongolia. So hopefully, knock on wood, you know, I, I won't get that question quite as much. It, it will be more evident that it's more come on, it is you, work. isn't it? Just admit it. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I was talking about this with um, a, a de- also a debut novelist, Boris Fishman, uh, yeah. and he was saying. Now, his novel is is about a scheme that I won't go into a lot of the detail on here, but that is mm-hmm. pretty – it's based in real life, but there's some fantastical kind of aspects to it. And mm-hmm. he has run into the same thing. Well, come on. This happened to you. Almost like mm-hmm. a – for people to understand the fiction, they feel like it has to be based, grounded mm-hmm. in nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know where that comes from. You know, and we even see it a little bit now more and more, even in movies. You know, yeah, like movies, it'll start right. with the black title and it'll tell you, you know, based on true right, events. Right, right. You know, so, um, so yeah, there's that, that impulse where, you know, back in the day, you know, when we see Humbert Humbert and Lolita, you know, we don't assume that that's Nabokov. But, uh, but yeah, more and more for some reason. <laughs> no, maybe it's reality TV. You know, maybe it's just the rise of all these other kinds of ways in which people have to express themselves. I'm, I'm not sure. But. I mean, we are a nation of nonfiction readers. And you know that, right? The sales mm-hmm. of nonfiction fiction far mm-hmm. exceeds the sales of fiction. I mean, mm-hmm. which is interesting given that when you first started writing this, you kind of came to the conclusion or writing the other book that that could be a memoir. You could have you could have continued with that. Why mm-hmm. why was it automatically well mm-hmm. well, now I have to set that aside and begin anew. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, it has to do with the idea of research. For some writers, research um, really drives their writing process. You know, the more research they've done and the more comfortable they feel writing whatever story it is that they've chosen to write. For me, I find research to be... um, to be a burden because it's a responsibility. Mm. So the more research I did about American nurses and doctors in Vietnam, the more I just felt um, weighed down by, again, the responsibility of having to portray their stories accurately. Um, 
And so for me, actually, again, going back to this idea of my imagination and being able to just make things up whole cloth, um, I'm better off telling stories in which I don't need to do that much research. <laughs> um, and so that's one of the reasons why, again, I gravitated more towards this particular story. So is this, do you think, your only novel that will be defined as you define it, identifiable with magical realism? Or is this the space that you really love to work in? And so whatever you're writing about Mongolia will have elements of that, too. I think this is the space that I really do enjoy uh, writing in. And I think, so for example, the book that I'm working on right now has to do with um, a Mongolian monk who is charged with finding the reincarnation of a previous Lama. And so, which is something that actually happens, you know, monks go out and they, right. they find, you know, reincarnation. So, but even in thinking about that, there's a mystical element to it. So I'm not sure, I haven't, you know, I'm maybe about 120 pages into this book. So the question of, you know, will it be more magical or will it be more mystical? I think it's going to be more mystical. Um, than necessarily magical. But again, it is a landscape, like I said, that I enjoy working in. You said you've made one trip to Mongolia so I have, far? Yes. Is yes. that enough or are you going to need to go back to write this novel? Well, you know, it's interesting now. Um, because of the internet and because of YouTube and because of more tourists going, you can just find lots of clips of different landscapes in Mongolia. When I was there the first, when I was there the only time, I was there for four weeks. So I did get a chance to see quite a bit of the country, but there are, Mongolia is huge. It's the size of France. Um, so there are a lot of places that I didn't get to see and that I already know will be um, locations in this book. And so I've really been relying on the internet and, wa and watching videos of people who've gone to these particular landscapes. Um, you know, I'm also, I, again, like I said, I don't like to do too much research, but I am, you know, reading books about people's experiences um, in different places. Um, and there's also just a, a rich, there's not that many, but there's quite a few um, National Geographic programs where they go to different places in Mongolia because the landscape is just so amazing. <laughs> you have the Gobi Desert, you know, you have all kinds of dinosaur findings there. In the west of the country, you have these amazing cliffs and, and mountains, the Atlai Mountains, um, where there are people who still hunt with eagles, which is just an amazing thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. In the north of the country, you have a people called the reindeer people. And the, the question is, you know, did they because they, they have a lot of similarities with Native American people in our country. And the question is, you know, 10,000 or 25,000 years ago when people crossed the, the, the land bridge, um, you know, do these people originate? You know, do they ha how did these cultures then end up being so similar and yet so far away from each other? So was it through human migration? Um, the people who actually use reindeer, um, who live in teepees. I mean, it's just amazing. So like I said, a lot of these things you can find now online. So the question of whether or not I will go back, um, it's still up in the air, but so we'll see. I have so much more I want to know about you. Will you stick around for the podcast? I will. All right, good. Um, and Quam Berry's book, by the way, featured front and center on our book page is called She Weeps Each Time You're Born. <laughs> 